Hey everybody, welcome to the latest episode. This is another analogue special, and of course I have with me a guest all the way from America. Uh, I hope you this one. I hope you enjoy this one. Uh, it's my friend Michael Kirchhoff from Catalyst Interviews, and also known for his work at Analog Forever. Uh, now in this podcast we discuss an interesting job swap with me, the vlogger. Um, childhood memories, Polaroids, Graflex cameras, um, travel and time zones. And of course, with his interview skills, we talk about techniques, ideas and some of the tools we use. And he also gives us some hints about why artist statements are important. Before we move over to the fun and games of the random questions where we discuss things like the afterlife and having a drink with Michael Jordan. If you think that sounds good, please don't hesitate to listen to the episode. So let's play the music, sit back, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome everybody to the latest episode of Vlogger Presents. I have with me another analog guest, and it's Michael Kirchhoff, all the way from LA. Hello, Andrew. Pleased to <laughs> pleased to meet you through the airwaves. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on this rainy afternoon in LA. Woohoo! Yes, a very rare occurrence, but I love it. <laughs> Thank you for having me. No, no, I, uh, I do appreciate you uh, spending the time coming on here. I, I do know how busy you are with so many different um, projects, the right word? Uh, yeah, I would call I would say projects, yeah. Yeah. So let's get to know you a little, Michael. Can you tell us, say, a little bit about um, where you grew up and what was it like there? Did you always live there, that sort of thing? Oh, sure. Uh, well, I'm actually, uh, I live in Los Angeles now, and this is where I was born and grew up. Um, I didn't, I haven't spent my entire life here, but the majority mm -hmm. of it I have. So I did, I spent some time uh, in San Francisco, California, Ooh. for a few years, and I spent about a year in uh, Santa Barbara and Ventura area, which is just north of Los Angeles. Mm. And then, uh, but I, uh, my time in San Francisco was, uh, I would say, let's see, that was from 1989 to 1992. And then I ended up moving back to Los Angeles and I have been back here since then. So, and I love it here. Yeah. Enjoy the sunshine. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, not, not today, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know, I know a big thing um, after talking with people from LA is, the weather is never something you consider. So surely as like an analog shooter, you, you, you're spoiled, aren't you? Um, yeah, definitely we're spoiled. Although uh, my personal view on that is um, when viewing photographs, I mean, it depends on the photographs, but especially things like landscape, um, uh, whether it's analog or not, um, I like 
when you can see weather happening in a photograph. Um, I love okay. I love the the feeling and the atmosphere that it conveys. And um, I'm probably a fan of that simply because I grew up here and yeah. the norm is for it to be sunny and bright most of the time. So seeing something different from my perspective, even just a simple rainy, cloudy day to me is something mm -hmm. a little bit more special. So I think it's all about the context of uh, the viewer for um, uh, what you like and what you uh, what you gravitate towards. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I'll tell you what, I've got a solution for that. Yeah? We do a job swap. <laughs> you, you come to the sunny UK. I've got my fingers inverted here. Uh, and I'll stay in the sun and we'll see which one prefers which. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah I would probably, although I've been to London a few times, uh, mm. and actually I've been fairly lucky. I've had fairly good weather when I have been there. Um, but, uh, yeah, I've, I've wondered that myself. Uh, if I've had to spend a, an extended period of time in a in kind of a, a cloudier, gloomier environment, um, how would that affect me? Um, and it probably wouldn't. It would probably have a negative effect over a long period of time. But I'm doing. <laughs> to be honest, it's. Um, I think it's just uh, it's something you get used to, and I think it's the same for you. You know, in, in the sun, if. Um, you've never experienced something for a long time, you don't miss it. Right. So yeah. for, for us, you know, a rainy day can be normal this time of year. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we do get bits of, we would say blue skies. I, I won't call it a sunny day because um, obviously you, you won't be able to go on a T-shirt like you can over there. But um, it is you know, still beautiful for photography-wise. Uh, right. Yeah. Oh, I bet. And I'm sure that that's, yeah, you, like you mentioned, being spoiled. I mean, um, I I can think of many times, many years where I have spent weeks and months in shorts and a t-shirt every single day. That's not yeah. at all unusual. <laughs> it's, it's very strange. I mean, uh, I have been to uh, California, so I, I do know what it's like. And no. We went south as well, so we went through all the wineries and stopped at the. Um, it's like a, it's like a border patrol, isn't it, for California? Where, um, oh, yeah. which is really strange when you, you used to jump in countries, you used to barbers, but when you sort of just going through a state, you you don't you don't believe that to be a patrol, but um, I think it was something to do with the wines, wasn't it? Right. Which is uh, very, 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 very different. And another thing I found weird was um, you can be traveling on the bus for a few hours and all of a sudden everyone's saying, right, you need to change your watches now because you've crossed a uh, time zone. You're like, <laughs> how big is this country? Right. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to do that in the UK. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, it gets confusing quickly. In fact, uh, it, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I've done a lot of photography in uh, Russia, of all places. And one of my trips there, um, I traveled on the Trans-Siberian Railway on the original, the original route, which 
Um, and now this is apparently this has changed uh, in the last few years. But at that hmm. time, this was 2009 that I did it. At that time, there were across Russia, there are, were 11 time zones. And when you wow. when you travel from one end of the country to the other, which still t- it takes quite some time, even if you go yeah. nonstop. But um, I, you know, partway through the trip, I literally had no idea what time it was. Um, and the train itself, no matter where it is in the country, operates only on Moscow time. So huh? I, I traveled with two watches. Um, I carried, um, I actually carried my father's watch that he had left for me when he passed away. And I set that to Moscow time. And that was my, because I had to stay on schedule for the train because I would get off, uh, in various cities along the way. And I spent three weeks doing it. So I always, I used that watch to always know what the train schedule was. So I didn't miss a train. (laughs) And then another watch that I was constantly readjusting whatever the current time zone was but i literally gave up on that halfway through because it was just it kind of didn't matter anymore (laughs) (laughs) you know i judged what time it was by how much sunlight i had left and where the sun was in the sky so that's crazy so how did you get into analog photography then did you do that from being young or was it college or it is uh well when i started photography that's all there was there was no digital. There was okay. not even. There was not even a thought or a talk of digital photography. So when I when I got into photography, which was actually in high school, um, okay. My first, I had been, you know, uh, I guess what you would call an amateur photographer or a hobbyist um, since I was a child. Uh, my father had given me a a, a little kind of brownie camera that I would shoot color film cartridges in um, when we would, you know, go on vacation or holiday different places and, um, you know, take like take images at school and things like that of friends. Um, But it wasn't until I got into high school that um, it that's kind of when the the uh, the light went on, so to speak, where I kind of thought, you know what, I really love doing this. And I realized that I had been doing it, you know, in a very kind of passive hobby kind of way for so long. And I thought, well, what, you know, let me see what more I can do. So I'm going to kind of study it some more and stay in school and, and uh, learn about it there. And then Maybe that's something that's a career choice. It wasn't a, it wasn't a definitive decision at the time, but it was something that I was considering, um, and it and it all really started in that high school photography class. And I believe I was 17 years old at the time, and that's when it got serious for me. Um, yeah. And then, of course, you know, over the years, it's just as i be, as i got out of school and i took on photography professionally it was still film was the way to go it was yeah. you know um with, with if you were creating your artwork i mean you, i was predominantly shooting black and white and uh, if i was shooting professionally i was shooting color transparency film because that's what the clients required um 
So I became very familiar with a lot of different cameras and a lot of different film. Um, And then as digital kind of, I guess, reared its ugly head, uh, so to speak, even though I, I can't put it down entirely because it is still very much a part of my um, process because I still shoot professionally and I work with a lot of other photographers who use digital. Um, But I have, will always kind of carry that nostalgia for film with me for the rest mm. of my life. You know, even if film were to go away entirely, it's definitely something I would probably kind of pine after for the rest of my life because, of, <laughs> you know, I, I have a lot of good memories of it. And mm. even today, even with digital taking over, um, the, I see more and more people kind of, taking film on again. And even even in a professional sense, I occasionally hear about a certain photographer who will shoot an assignment or a commercial job and they will choose to use film. And these days, the, a lot of the, the clients, that's new to them. And they, you know, cause they didn't grow up with film. So everybody's, you know, everybody's young now who's kind of running those agencies and, uh, it's new and adventurous to them. So they're, they start to get into it. And I have a feeling we're going to see more of that in a commercial sense again. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right there. I know there's one lady who I interviewed, uh, Jennifer Lawrence. Mm-hmm. She only shoots film. She does lifestyle and portraiture, uh, sort of family stuff. And, um, she's, she, um, she charges a very good rate, very, very good quality pictures. She has a really good ethos of um, Johnny shoots when the sun's out. If it's not out, she'll rebook it another time uh-huh. because, you know, she gets the quality and the consistency. And I just think that's fantastic. Yeah, that's her, I mean, that's her process and that's what works for her and that's why people come to her, I'm sure. Yeah, and I, I just think that, that's really good. You know, she, she's out to shoot the children and running about, and she's still shooting film. So right. it can be done, and I admire that. Um, when you were saying about um, having this sort of um, films have this effect on you, you've got this nostalgia. But I see the opposite with some people. Um, I mean, I'm in my 40s, and I've got quite a lot of friends in similar age groups. And they're sort of thankful for digital now, whether it's because of eyesight or autofocus has made it a bit easier or um, costs. And obviously I'm unlike anyone I know um, because I never did any of that. I never did photography. So um, for me, new is something old. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's (laughs) It's a generational sort of thing to to take on yeah it's it's really weird that um because people think i'm in my 40s that they think i did film when i was in my teenage and 20s but (laughs) you know there wasn't i didn't have that experience i know no one who owned a camera um so um yeah it's really weird being um totally different to uh, the rest of the, the mates sort of thing and um, yeah, we're all struggling with eyesight, and you know, my, mine's pretty bad. But it doesn't mean to say I want the camera to make 
uh, make it easier for me. Mm -hmm. I like the challenge. Um, so, yeah. um, oh, I, I agree completely. I'm, I'm very much the same way. I actually, my, my uh, vision is not great. I always have to wear contacts or glasses. Okay. And I have since I was young. Um, but that's, you know, that's just what's normal for me. And um, mm. I've always been able to kind of make it work, whether I'm shooting film or digital. But you are, you're right that uh, I think digital has, uh, has helped people overcome a lot of difficulties that they've had with uh, image making uh, in their life. And, you know, <coughs> excuse me, um, but um, vision is obviously a key component. So um, uh, I know that being able to kind of zoom in on a picture as you as you take it, um, that you can kind of check your focus on the fly and and know what it is, yeah. you know, have at least have a better idea of what you're doing and what you're what's what's going about within each frame. So it's it definitely is a help. Um, but then you take on something like film um, and it becomes a new challenge and people I think people accept it that way. They accept that challenge and they kind of revel in it because once they get images that they are happy with, it's a kind of a bit of a revelation to them that, that um, mm -hmm. you know, taking on this new way of seeing really um, and to get positive results out of it, um, it's kind of a, it's a very affirming kind of feeling that you get from it. And I think that's one of the reasons why film photography is kind of uh, coming back to a certain degree. People are discovering that feeling all over again. You know, not that, not that digital made everything so easy for everybody. It certainly did in some aspects, but it also made other aspects difficult because there is certainly a learning curve. They're very, they're very like they're different species of the same animal. So um, yeah, yeah. There's a there's a process that you have to kind of take on with each of them, and in some ways they're wildly different, in other ways they're exactly the same. But um, mm. learning something new like film photography to a lot of people, it's exciting, and it's uh, uh, you kind of get a sense of how how the history of photography has affected image making. And um, I think it helps, it helps ground you in that in terms of, especially if you're making say artwork for that, for that matter, you make mm -hmm. and printing fine yeah. art photographs. Uh, that's really a, it's a big component. Yeah. Yeah. I have to agree with you. It's uh, I think it improves your photography. I think it, and I'm not just talking about quality. It's you, you get a better understanding of optics, or you get a better understanding of light. Um, the limitations that I put myself under make me work harder, and it means I have to understand better. So uh, recently, when I started this, um, I'm doing this um, project where I'm um, photographing my friends, and I'm doing it all low key. Oh, well, interesting. Six weeks ago, I didn't know what low-key was. <laughs> so so uh, my friend taught me the basic of it, and we did one, one or two pictures with it. And then I was like, right, that's it. I've, I've got this. Uh, and I just practiced it. And um, 
the the idea of my project is to uh, shoot the friend in their home and I'm to use anything I can to make the shot. So uh, my first friend I used uh, his dog's blanket to cover up the door behind him, <laughs> so it blackened it out. Right. Um, my second friend I used his hat art sketch pad to bounce a bit of light off to his eyes. Right. So, so it's, you know, little things like that. So the constraints are I take a camera with a lens and I use one flash and my snoot. That's it. Right. And you to take the simplest of tools and create something beautiful out of that is a very satisfying experience. Oh, it's been fabulous. And I'm, I'm only shooting manual focus um, because that's all I've got. Right. Uh, <coughs> excuse me um, which in itself is a, a an annoyance because of my eyesight sure. um, I'm long sighted but um, I need close vision glasses as well so I could take the shot I could see the person but then to look at the screen to see the result I need to put my glasses on and then I have to take them off again to look at the person so I've got this continual annoyance of taking my glasses on and off. Um, and <laughs> I find it very annoying. Um, it, it's something I'm having to live with now I'm in my 40s. Um, but that's us blokes for you, isn't it? We're not great at things like that. Right. But you make it work. You know, you figure it out and you make yeah. it work. And that's, again, yeah. that's, you kind of, you've also touched on um, something that, uh, is another key part of being a photographer and that's being a problem solver because yeah. how often are we put into circumstances where we have an idea of what it is we want to photograph and how to go about it but circumstances have kind of become out of our control for one reason or another and we have to kind of sometimes make compromises or sometimes we have uh, a bit of a, an epiphany and we realize that there's more than one way to go about it and we kind of whatever problem exists we overcome it and we get the photograph that we need to make and uh, especially in terms of shooting commercially that's why photographers get hired right the clients they have a need for a certain photograph to be made and mm. they find the, they find the right person for the job because that person is going to be able to uh, overcome any of the problems that might arise. And they know that if they're paying the bill, they're going to get something worthwhile out of it. So um, yeah. your, the capabilities of the photographer are, uh, are huge when it comes to uh, shooting something like an advertising campaign um, or creating a fine art body of work for that matter. You know, they, you don't always get the best circumstances that, you know, we don't get to choose the mm -hmm. circumstances that we uh, make photographs in. So we, uh, we, again, I always say, you just have to figure it out. You know, we, yeah. Yeah. So we problem solve in that. Gets yeah. I like that. And honestly, like your, that. your story about the, uh, um, you know, having to, to fuss about between the glasses that you're wearing and focusing the manual camera. 
I remember years ago working with a photographer uh, as his assistant, and we would travel all over the place. And he was he was shooting a lot of kind of like industrial scenes, some with people, some without, for various industries. And um, he always wore glasses, and then he would always have another pair of glasses on top of his head. And he would shoot with, this was also film days, there was no digital. Mm -hmm. And he would, uh, and he was using a, like, he would use either a Hasselblad or a Nikon camera, manual focus. And when he would look through the camera, for some reason, he had it set up so that in order to look through the camera and focus the camera, he would leave on the pair of glasses he had and then lower the other pair of glasses in front of the previous pair and then try to do <laughs> the camera. So, and it was uh, every time he would do it, I thought, yeah, this is not going to go well. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. but somehow, but again, that was his process and that's what worked for him. And I always thought, man, you just look ridiculous doing this and there's got to be a better way. But for him, that was the better way. So again, we just make it work however we can. Yeah, yeah. That's it. You, know, you, you can't change what you've been given in that sense, can you? You can change your clothes and your attitude, but you can't change um, physics and things like that. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, so when you've been traveling in, do you shoot landscapes predominantly or do you do portraits? Is the commercials there as well? Or um, Yeah, I actually... Uh, lately, I've been shooting a little less commercial work than I used to, um, mm. uh, which has been fine uh, because it has allowed me to do more fine artwork and then to take on a couple of other uh, projects uh, that that I've started recently. Um, so I don't mind, you know, kind of missing out on some of that work. And it's something that I can always try to get back again if I want to and if I have the time to do. Uh, but lately it's just been, it's been fine artwork and predominantly there are kind of two aspects of what I do. I do, um, I guess what you would basically call a form of street photography that I shoot with Holga toy cameras. Oh yeah. Those are obviously all shot on film. Um, so there are those and then what I, I guess to say that I'm most known for is using original Polaroid film. And I've been doing a lot of landscape and architectural studies. And uh, some of those are more kind of full-blown projects that are ongoing or have gone on for several years. And then there are others that are kind of what I would refer to more as like a collection where it hmm. wasn't necessarily a, a project but it was more of a collection of photographs from a specific place or event or something like that but i would uh, my film of choice um, for all of that work has been a film that ceased production in i believe it was i think the last production date was in 2007. i think that's correct okay might have been 2008. I can't remember now. Um, and that was Polaroid. It was called Polaroid Type 665. And it was a very special film. Um, and there was another, there was Type 55, which a lot of people probably 
know more um, from the back then, but it was a positive negative film. So you would shoot a Polaroid and you would uh -huh. pull it out of the camera and what, you know, normally you would peel them apart and you would yeah. get either a little black and white or a little color print, depending on what type of film you shot. And that was it. Uh, with this film, however, you, it was a black and white only film and it was generally a slower um, ISO film. Um, either okay. it was either 50 ISO or 80, depending on the format that you shot. And yeah. when you peel it apart, you would get a little black and white print and it was still of the type that you had to like pull out a little coating stick and put a layer of this smelly chemistry over it that would kind of fix the image and keep it from fading. But then the other what? part that you used to that you thought, oh, I just throw that part away. You could actually take that and you could put it in a, in a solution of uh, water and sodium sulfite and it would clear it would clear it and it would make a negative it was actually shot on a film base and there was wow. a motion on it so so you with that one with that one polaroid you would get a little black and white print and then you would get a negative of the same size so the type 55 was their um large format four by five film uh which i shot a lot hmm. of as well but the 665 was a little bit smaller it was a pack film Originally, mm -hmm. there was eight sheets in a pack. Then later, there were 10 sheets in a pack. And um, you would shoot it in predominantly uh, medium format cameras. And okay. on the camera you use, like the cameras that I would use, they would shoot at full frame. So that film was, was uh, let's see. So there was four by five inches for the four by four yeah. film. And then the pack film was three and a quarter by four and a quarter. So not that much smaller. Um, and it was a full frame and if, whether you would print that in the dark room or scan it and make prints from that later, um, they were very high, very high quality negatives, um, really interesting tonal range. And, uh, yeah. it's something that I really loved. Um, and it became part of my fine art process. Um, and I've shot several bodies of work with that film and it can continue to even to this day, even though what little I have left of that film, um, uh, I would say over the last year, I've realized that um, fewer and fewer of those images are coming out because, you know, the film literally expired, let's see, was it was 2019. So that's the best film that I have expired 12 years ago. Yeah. So, so you can imagine how, you know, what that success rate is becoming and it's becoming less and less so there have been times where i'll shoot you know i have a pack of 10 images uh in that polaroid pack and sometimes i will only get one sometimes i won't get any so um i think i have maybe i'm not sure i actually i need to do a count i would say i have no more than probably somewhere between 25 and 30 packs of film and there's really, really only one body of work that I'm still working on, so uh, that that I will continue to use that film for. So I kind of earmarked that film just for that body of work to try to to I guess flesh it out as much as I possibly can uh, with what I have left. That sounds really interesting film. So it's Type Fifty Five. 
This is actually type 665. I have some type 55 as well, but this is type 665 that I use because the camera of choice that I use was also, not, not only is the film problematic, but the camera is as well. So um, I, uh, I don't make anything easy on myself, that's for sure. So I've been <laughs> using a camera that was um, uh, predominantly a press camera from the 1960s, and it's made by okay. called Graflex. And oh yeah, yeah. So the cam the the camera that most people know of in terms of the Graflex were the four by five press press cameras um, and the ones that people like Ouija used to use, um, and they had a flash like a, a kind of a a flash mechanism on the side with a little reflector on it, and you would pop hmm. uh, magnesium filament bulbs in and out of it to use the flash or you just didn't use flash at all and they those were all four by five so this in the 60s they the company came out with a uh, a camera called a graflex xl and it was a okay. uh, a modular system so that you there was a camera body and then there were different lenses different film backs um different viewfinders okay. that you could put on it um hand grips things like that so there were all these kind of accessories that you could customize it to do what you wanted it to do so i settled on i have i i think very kind of cinematically in terms of the scenes that i that i photograph so i settled on a very wide angle lens for that camera and then uh, a polaroid back that basically lives on it and i have a couple of them uh but i shoot very wide with it um so the equivalent negative that I get from that would be similar to if you were shooting, say you were shooting 35 millimeter and you put a 20 millimeter lens on the front of that camera. That's kind of the, the perspective that I'm getting and looking for. Wow, that is wild. Right. And I've, so, I've discovered that it's a very, if, if it's cold outside, it becomes very difficult to focus. <laughs> it sort of freezes up. Oh, that sounds really interesting. Yeah, interesting and difficult at times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the fact that you're using something so old, um, and, and you know that's expiring and it's going to disappear. It's, you know, it's quite scary. Um, right. It's and it's become something that I kind of I'm, you know, a lot of people a lot of people still shoot this way. Not exactly my hmm. way, but. Uh, but with that sort of film, there's well, not a lot. There's a handful of people who really still do it frequently. Um, mm. But it's becoming fewer and fewer. And that's simply because the film is becoming, you know, you can still find it for sale, say, on yeah. like or places like that. But a lot of the time, you could pay a very exorbitant price for that film and find that none of it actually works. So it's a gamble. But uh, But again, that's... Uh, a process that I've kind of developed and uh, I'm kind of holding on to for as long as I possibly can. But um, I'm definitely <laughs> seeing an end to that in the near future. So, and I have ideas of what I'll do next and there will still be that kind of, the same kind of uh, vision or aesthetic that I've developed. Uh, you know, I'll do things similarly, but I'll have, just have to use different materials in the future. That's all. So the, the pictures on your gallery, on your website, 
Um, are they are they polarized then? Yes. Um, uh, I guess if you were to go to my website and you looked at the portfolio section, all of yep. them except for the last two. One is one is called vignette and one is called unintentional portraits. Those are the toy camera street photography images. Everything else okay. on the website is shot uh, with the black and white Polaroid six six five positive negative film. I, I thought so because you've obviously got that randomness, expired edges where it's not quite perfect. Right. And so if, that's actually something that I that kind of not perfect quality that you get yeah. with the film. I actually kind of push that to uh, even more of an extreme uh, to more of an extreme level because uh, again, that's kind of that flawed, fractured, imperfect nature of the film is part of part again it, that's part of my process and that's mm. part of my aesthetic and what i'm kind of known for and i've always i've always kind of uh i guess when i've when i've talked about the work uh and the process i've always said that that imperfect flawed quality is a reflection of the person who's making it being myself uh, I've always felt of myself as a flawed person and uh, and imperfect, and I think all humans are. But I've kind of, I, you know, I, I guess prefer or like that quality about myself because you know, I if someone's going to make fun of me or somebody's going to, you know, criticize me, um, that's fine because. Uh, nobody's going to be more critical of myself than I am. So I, I really embrace that quality of being imperfect. And um, that's just my, my process. And, and now at this point, I've kind of, I guess, become a little bit more known for that. So I've actually curated shows and done exhibitions of other people's work who think in a very similar fashion so um uh it's kind of come full circle for me in terms of uh creating work and promoting work in that same way mm. Mm, that's, that's good i think it shows that um polaroid was just much more than a film it was a following a style and to probably to a lot of portrait photographers, it was essential, wasn't it, for me to earn? Yeah. It I've was... met quite a few people who, so, there were some people that I admired early on who were doing things similar to me, and over time they've become really good friends, and you realize that there's a bit of a, kind of a, a niche network of people who love not just Polaroid, but instant film in general, because there are, you know, let's face it, the Polaroid in the original sense doesn't exist anymore. There's now Polaroid originals and Fuji makes an instant film. And so, so there are people that use other instant film materials, but we all kind of share that same, um, again, nostalgia and love for that, uh, yeah. for that material. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. I, was, I think it's just become a cult as well because um, even people like myself, I can remember us having a camera like that. Obviously, it being something basic. Uh, and I think we've got some Polaroids around the house as well from uh, my mum and dad and people like that. Right. And again, that's um, earlier I had mentioned about, you know, taking photographs when I was a child. And um, that's partly because um, when I was, I can't remember exactly how old I was. I want to say seven or eight years old. Um, hmm. my, my father bought an early uh, a Polaroid SX-70 camera. Um, it shot that. It was called Polaroid SX-70. That was the film format. And it was mm -hmm. that kind of, it was a very commercial film that came out where you push the button and it spit a, a square image out the front of the camera. And that was it. That's all you had to do to make a photograph. You didn't have to process anything. You didn't have to, there was no darkroom time or dropping anything off at a lab. You got a, you had a finished photograph in about a minute or two. And that was magic to me as a kid. And it's mm -hmm. magic to me now. So I can, you know, I can, I can say I've been photographing with instant film and Polaroid for well over 40 years. So. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Really is. Yeah. Well, all we've got to do is just keep faith that, um, Polaroid Originals keeps working hard and uh, I know there's that project to um, try and bring back pack film in there but in, in a way I think it's quite an exciting time to be in the sort of film industry because there's lots of revivals and new ways of doing things coming out. Oh for sure yeah we're um, especially with instant film um, because there are because there's such a uh, level of commitment to a lot of the people that photograph with that sort of film no you know and everybody knows that it's kind of it's been slowly dying off so there are mm. a great many people doing whatever they possibly can to prevent that from happening and the people behind polaroid originals which was originally called the impossible project they are i mean i at this point you can say you can legitimately say that they have saved instant film and yes. that film is an analog material um i mean it was it was quite literally destined to go away entirely and they they brought it back and they've made it a success and mm. it hasn't been an easy road but um you know since taking on the you know buying the intellectual property of the polaroid brand um, and rebranding themselves as Polaroid Originals, um, I think it's reminded a lot more people about what Polaroid used to be, and now we're getting a lot more people involved in in shooting that sort of material. And you're finding hmm. you're finding that film and those in uh, the new cameras that they're making, you're finding those in uh, stores throughout, certainly throughout the U.S. Um, and I'm That's sure cool. other parts of the world as well. So. Um, it's a huge step in the right direction. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited about it. Um, it it's probably the one thing I've not done as yet. So it's got to go on my list at some point. Um, but, yeah, 
as we as we've already spoke, it's a long list. So <laughs> right, exactly. I think I need to keep uh, keep that in bay for uh, for a while now. Anyway, um, do you get time to write as well, or do you just not find time anymore? Time to write. Yeah. Um, actually, I've been writing more than anything else late, lately. Uh, okay. And uh, um, writing is actually, uh, at least in the in the fine art sense of photography, not just writing, but doing what we're doing now, just talking about photography and about our work. That's a that's a huge part of it because, um, you know. A lot of people have always said things like, well, you know, I don't need to talk about my photography because my images speak for themselves or the, mm -hmm. the, the classic, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, that's true, but um, mm. somebody needs to say those words. They don't just happen on their own. So yeah. um, in terms of creating uh, bodies of work and, and making the photographs that you're you're setting out to do, uh, being able to write about that work and talk about that work is a big part of it. So uh, where I was quite reluctant to do that uh, originally, like a lot of other people were, um, because I kind of, I guess I kind of felt that same way early on that like, oh, well, the, the pictures speak for themselves, but the pictures can't speak, so you have to do it. And I learned that quickly. And so doing things like say you develop a body of work or a collection of, of work in some way, you want to be able mm -hmm. to, to talk about that, uh, to let people know the, the ins and outs of what, what it is that you're trying to do, why you're doing it, um, where does that, where did the idea come from, what do you intend to do with those images, um, things like that. And so writing something like an artist statement about your work is uh, is extremely helpful to other people, but what I didn't know early on that I know now is that writing about your work, uh, even if you weren't to share it with anybody else, um, it's very very helpful in terms of what mm. it is that you're doing and where you're taking your your photography, um, creating work with uh, uh, intent is is a big part of uh, a part of that world and knowing knowing where it comes from and where it's going um, is extremely helpful in terms of doing you know taking the next steps with your work at least so uh, that for me had took I went from writing artist statements to developing a couple of other projects with other people uh, mm -hmm. where writing about other people's work has now become uh, a part of it. And in terms, at least for me, predominantly in terms of like an interview form, uh, I've been doing that more and more, uh, especially the last, uh, I guess I kind of started it about a year ago, um, uh, at least seriously. And, uh, yeah. and I'm really liking the process. I never, I never set out to be a writer and I don't, you know, I don't re really refer to myself that way, um, even though it's something I do a lot. Because um, I think a lot of, I think I'm still kind of figuring that out myself. And and 
and learning. Um, and, you know, I've already seen some kind of some improvement from where I started to now. And uh, as long as I keep it up, I figure I'm only going to keep getting better. So, uh, so yeah, so writing is a big, a big part of my life at this point. Um, and like I said, I wasn't, I wasn't seeing that happening, but uh, uh, I like mm -hmm. where it's going. No, that, that, that's good. I, I agree with you. I think it's important to talk about your work. Um, even even on silly little things, say like on Instagram, I, on my analog feed, I'm sort of documenting as I go when I uh, buy something new, try something new. Mm -hmm. So like I took pictures of um, where I wash my prints just so people can see how easy it is to do it in a crap and cheap way but still get uh, something out of it right and you know i took pictures of me with um, um with a load of c41 chemicals in like a big like bucket storage box thing uh -huh. and it's like you know this is what i have to make do with and does a, uh, the negatives come out of course they do Right. Uh, you know, and, and I just explain this is what I'm trying, and then you get people answering, "Oh, that that's really good to see." And it's like, yeah, you, you can do it. Anyone can do it. Um, so you know, th that's not an artist statement, but it it's documenting, isn't it? Yeah, and that and that you know, that isn't just helpful to other people. It's helpful to yourself because you have that to review and. And I think yeah. when you do stuff like documenting, docu documenting, documenting uh, what it is that you're doing, um, you're really you're really examining what it is that you're doing, and you're realizing the steps that you're taking and why you're taking them. So it helps your you know it it helps that kind of problem solving aspect that we need to engage in, and it helps. It just helps for the next time that you do it, and as long as you keep keep at it, um, you're only going to get better. So, what you know? Yeah. Just, you know, I always I always tell people who are kind of getting into photography and that are trying to trying to take the steps to to do it more seriously. I always tell them that perseverance is key, and yeah. you're not going. You know, the the minute the minute you give up, well, then you've already failed. You don't, you're not going to get that back. Nobody's going to do it for you. You have to, you have to be the one that steps up and keeps at it. And I know, like, I'll be the first to tell anybody, it's really difficult sometimes because this is not, you know, engaging in the arts is not mm -hmm. easy, you know, uh, not, no. not to do it in, especially to do it in a very kind of, formal way um it's it's a lot of work and people i think most people don't see that so um they don't realize how difficult it is and how much work is involved so again when you document something like you're really informing other people uh about not just how difficult it is but how important it is to you and to i guess really society in general because we all need art in our lives if you ask me yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think it's just something I've sort of slowly realised. So initially I would just shoot 
lots of different things and I was always pretty scared of shooting um, portraiture because I've never been in a, I would call it like a clinical situation because you, a model's there to look pretty and portray some sort of image and you're there to try and capture it. You've never met this person before and I always have that sort of initial, got no idea what I'm doing. Right. <laughs> oh, I need to set my camera up right because I'm too nervous. <laughs> and it, it happens so many times. Um, so now I just sort of try and relax. And I'm like, I'll just take five photos. That'll do me. Um, and then I'll go find another model. Um, and I'll think, no, let me try this. That worked a minute ago. Do you want to do it? Yeah, yeah, let's try it. And we'll just have a chat. And I try and take a picture when um, they're not even looking at me. Uh, just totally off guard, totally natural. And they've been some of my best shots. Right. Yeah, and that's, I think, I think that's, uh, that's another kind of key aspect to it is that um, you have to be, you have to be okay with failing once in a while yeah you know you're not going to learn unless you fail so you know i i can't tell you how many people i've known and met over the years who they some of them come up with like brilliant ideas and and then you follow up with them later and you say hey how did that you know is that working out how's that going um what have you learned um is it a success is it a failure what happened and they'll say no, I just you know uh, I never, I never did it. I never, I never took the steps to to make that happen. And I always think that that's a huge letdown. You know, I mean, if I would, I would have, I, and I think people will do it because they're afraid to fail. And I, I think that well, that's that in itself is the failure is the fact that you didn't even mm -hmm. try. So I would have way more respect for somebody who publicly would say, this is what I'm going to do, try to do it. And, it, and it, if it turned out to be a complete disaster, I have more respect and more faith in somebody like that than somebody who never even bothered to try. Yeah. You know, because the next time that person does it, they'll probably do it better and, you know, and better after that. So why not keep at it? Yeah, perseverance. Right. Yeah. So for anyone listening, um, Michael actually is, uh, is editor-in-chief? Of Analog Forever uh, Magazine, yes. Yeah, so that, that was one of the reasons um, uh, we knew Michael. And you also run something called Catalyst, don't you? Yes. Can you tell us about um, Catalyst then for now? So Catalyst came about... Um, uh, the idea for it came about because uh, before all of these things, there was a magazine which has recently uh, closed called Blur Magazine. And mm -hmm. it, was, uh, it was an international um, digital publication. It was, it was produced in a PDF form and then you could, you, know, you could view it on your phone or a tablet or a laptop or something like that. Um, and uh, it, that was that magazine was born out of uh, the founder and editor in chief um, by name guy, uh, by a guy named uh, Robert Gojevic, and he's in 
Zagreb, Croatia. So he started that magazine over 10 years ago and mm. turned it into quite a success. And a little over four years ago, um, he approached me about um, helping him really just find people to be in the magazine. It was, it was done fairly simply um, in terms of the layout and, con and the concept. Um, but I was, I was basically curating uh, people and their work to appear in that magazine. So um, it, it happened uh, every other month. So it was publishing six times a year. Um, and initially I was just doing either two or three people for each issue. And then at a certain point, he said, I really like this person's work. He, he picked somebody out that I, that I had presented to him for publication. Mm -hmm. And he said, I really like this person's work. What do you think about interviewing them? Because he, he would always do, he would always publish an interview in each issue, but he was always the guy doing the interviews. Um, so he asked me to do it. And I said, you know, you know, like so often, I, sometimes I just say, I think I should say, <laughs> I just say yes. we talked about this in the past. So I, I think, no, I don't really know. But then I say, yes, okay, I'm going to do it. So now I've committed myself to doing it. And, and I did, and it was, you know, it was an interesting process because I'd been at the, you know, at the other end of doing interviews where people had been asking me the questions. So now I'm the one who has to come up with the questions and, um, I never wanted to ask questions, you know, like, oh, what's, you know, I've actually had people ask me what my favorite color was in an interview, which I always thought was ridiculous. Um, you know, but sometimes people ask very kind of timid or basic questions that don't really, they don't really, not that they don't apply to the person, but they don't really, uh, they aren't informed um, as yeah. to what that person is doing. So I decided that early on that I wanted to kind of research what this person does. If I didn't already know their work, then I needed to kind of do some research and know more about what them, so know more about them so that I could ask the proper questions, right? So I did that for Blur Magazine for a couple of, I guess I did that, it was about two years. I did several interviews for them. And then um, what was inevitably happening is there would be people that I would bring to the magazine and say, I really want to, you know, oh, what do you think about interviewing this person? And I'm not in charge. So sometimes I would get turned down, right? They say, oh, no, I, I don't think that that's person's, you know, I'm not into it. So no, the answer is just no. And that's fine. That's, you know, that's his prerogative. He's, he's in charge. Um, hmm. And that's fine. Or maybe he had one that he wanted to do that he thought was better. Fine, you know. We worked very well together, and uh, there was never any kind of anger, or animosity, or or problem uh, in working okay. together, which was great. Um, but the, but I thought, you know what? There's so many people that I really, I'm really interested in their work um, because I get a lot out of it. I, you know, I, you know, I'm inspired by it, or uh, or I learn something. I just flat out learn something that I did not know before. And something and there are things that I find very fascinating. So at the beginning, early in 2018, just last about, mm -hmm. probably about this time last year, actually, um, I had the idea. I thought, you know what? I'm just going to start my own website 
and all I'm going to do, <laughs> I'm just going to start a website and all I'm going to do is interview other photographers. That's what it's going to be about. Um, and uh, the, I'll be just in written form and I'll probably ask, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, write a little, a short intro, I'll run their bio, uh, I'll put links to their website and anything else that they like. And then I'll ask, you know, 12, 15 questions, something like that, and just publish it and online. And it'll just kind of be a resource. And after Blur Magazine closed, I ended up putting all of those interviews I had done as well onto it. Um, but I really didn't start it until, you know, like I said, the, the idea came about a year ago, but it, I spent probably, gosh, I don't know, I would say five, five to six months kind of figuring out exactly how I wanted to do it and, you know, hmm. it kind of blo I realized, well, if I do that, then obviously you need to promote it. And so now I need to do the social media to go with that. And how am I going to do that? So there are all these kind of like, you know, other, other parts, all these other little moving parts that kind of go with it that you have to do in conjunction with starting a site like that. So, um, I decided to do that and, uh, and it launched, about a month before uh, Analog Forever did. And at this point, I'm, I do two interviews per month. Um, mm -hmm. uh, they, pub they always publish on, on a Wednesday um, in the middle of the week. Um, and I chose that day. Uh, I, I realized early on that if you look at like social media um, like reports about when the best time and the best day is to publish. They always say Wednesday is the worst day. So I thought, you know what? If that means nobody else is doing it that day, so I'm just going to do it. <laughs> I'm going to do it that day anyway. Like I don't care. I don't care what they say. I'm just going to do it. I'm going to do it my way. And that's how it is. <laughs> so, so I kind of bucked tradition and said I'm going to do it on Wednesdays and every other, you know, well twice a week, every other week I will. Uh, do a new interview so that's where i'm at with that and i'm really you know i'm really enjoying doing it i, I and i one of the reasons i enjoyed is because i realized when i would do an interview for somebody else if somebody else was asking me questions you know i would i would provide the answers and as i was doing that um i was kind of realizing more and more about my own work in my own process that I hadn't really thought of before or I hadn't realized before. So at least not so succinctly. Um, mm. So it was very, it was a very positive experience and it was helping me to be more informed about my own work and my own process. And it made it easier for me to, to write about and to talk about my own work and, and to, to understand the direction uh, of where I was going with a body of work or just as a photographer in general. Um, so yeah. I found it very beneficial and I thought, well, if I write questions for other people, uh, it will hopefully be helping them in the same way. Um, and I think in some ways it has for, for many of the people that I've interviewed. And again, yeah. it's also helped me again as well, because now I'm researching and I'm kind of, you know, I want to ask, you know, intelligent, informed questions of these people. So that requires mm -hmm. some, some thought and some, some diligence on my part to, uh, to bring a certain amount of quality to 
the interview. So I, you know, I don't just, there, I have like a list of kind of what I would call boilerplate questions, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, and some of them, you know, some of them are the same way of, you know, or like a different way of asking the same thing, but, yeah. but they are often gear, you know, I'll often gear them towards that specific person in, in a certain way. Yeah. Um, but they're, but it's generally examining a photographer's creative process. So um, there are definitely questions that I'll ask almost everybody, you know, at least the, there's a few that are always kind of crop up in each interview, but, um, but most of the interviews are kind of customized specifically to that person. Um, and that, you know, that that takes some effort um but but again i learned from them so yeah i i don't think people realize um the thinking involved in asking intelligent questions right uh, i mean I, obviously i've seen some of your interviews and yeah there, there's some fantastic thoughts going in there that are far deeper than anything i could ever ask but every time like you say uh, i interview um I learn something and I'm the same when, when I'm doing these that I want someone to not just learn about yourself, but it's um, why you do things or there's a way of doing things and education is so important, I think. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. Mm. So interviewing people then, um, what's the best way of selecting them what what's the best way we could advise people that we're interviewing what what sort of tips you could you give there well i think uh a lot of the a lot of the questions that i write are they're specific about uh that per like i said it's a, more or less an examination of uh yeah of them as an artist and their creative process. Uh, yeah. Because I said, like I said, when we talk about our work or write about our work and how that's mm -hmm. a very key component of what we're doing. So I will often ask questions in that regard. And um, so I will usually do some research. I'll look at their website. Sometimes I'll, uh, depending on the person, I'll, I'll I'll find through that research a previous interview that they did with someone or some entity, and uh, yeah. um, I'll see what had been kind of touched upon before. And sometimes I have questions about the questions that have been asked before, so I'll kind of come up with an idea or, or a question uh, from that angle. Or sometimes, sometimes it's just a it's a very simple question about the process in terms of. The materials that they use but it really it's it's more about that kind of thought process um and something a little bit uh deeper and where yeah you know, where where do the ideas come from where does the motivation come from mm -hmm. uh, because that's all part of our creative process and uh um when i when i write them for a specific person, it's really trying to understand what it is that they're doing. And some people are easier than others because some people are very good about articulating what it is that they're yeah. doing. And other people, it's a little bit, not, it's not that it's not known, or it, but it, maybe it's a little bit more 
more vague or it's something that I simply don't understand. And I'm not, and I've said this in, in interviews that I've done in the past where I interview somebody who I really don't know anything about, not what they do, but who they are as an artist or, yeah. um, you know, some uh, uh, people come from all different walks of life. So I might ask somebody who uh, questions where that person has a life so completely opposite of my own or their upbringing mm -hmm. is completely different that I really, you know, there are so many questions that I have that it's actually hard to narrow down what it is uh, that I need to ask. And I'm not afraid to ask a stupid question, you know, because yeah. you know, like I say, a stupid question, but there, again, there are no stupid questions because um, now, now it's not just about their creative process. It's about mine as well, because I have to kind of figure that out and uh, uh, ask questions about things that I really may not know a whole lot about. You know, I might have the, the, mm. photog the, the photographic topics kind of covered, but people don't just, you know, people don't just photograph about things that I, I only know. So, um, so it's yeah. a, it's a bit of an exploration, I guess, is is what I'm really trying to say. So, in terms of writing questions, you kind of have to explore ideas and concepts that you may or may not be familiar with or comfortable with, for that matter. It may not even be yeah. work that I, you know, I, I don't, I can't say that I've ever interviewed anybody whose work I didn't like in some way, because I guess mm. that's kind of how you know. Partly, at least, I that's <laughs> how I choose, choose the people. I, you know, sometimes there are people yeah. I know, but a lot of them, especially lately, they're people that I don't always know, um, and I don't know anything specific about. So, um, questions will just arise out of out of sheer curiosity. Yeah, I don't know if that really yeah, answers yeah. your question or helps. No, it's <laughs> uh, no, fine. Yeah, kind of, like I said, this is a learning process for me as well. So I'm kind of. Yeah. Do, doing it in a public forum. Yeah, I think um, I, I think it's the same the same process, and I think that the only difference is the medium with podcasting over doing it uh, online or uh, however you want to call it. Um, I think in some ways, getting that instant thing over a podcast, uh, hearing their voice, I think sometimes you get a bit more personality. Sure which really helps. So, um, like I said to you earlier, you, you, like you said, you literally know nothing about that person till you start asking questions. So within a couple of minutes, I think you can build up a rapport, which you can't necessarily do online. True, um, yeah. There's a lot of nuance going on that you don't... There is, yeah. Them. And and that's how I started. My, mine were literally all online, and it was really tough because um, it's a much slower process. Um, but I do think, in some ways, people can articulate very well and put some fantastic words down than they can podcasting. Sure. And, and I'm exactly the same. Sometimes I can't think of the right word. Uh, but it's not a problem because um, I always feel 
if you're just honest and just talk, then people understand your personality will come through anyway. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. It's interesting that you say that too, because you realize it that really does make me realize that um, one form of the interview versus another, um, they both have pros and cons. They're, they're definitely, yeah. They're definitely things that uh, um, I might be able to capture that you might not doing a podcast and the other way around for that matter. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's always there's always a flip side to everything. Yeah, they each um, present their own challenges and they both have their own positive and negative aspects. Yeah. So, so um, for anyone listening, obviously one of the biggest drawbacks um, is language barriers. Um, like Michael, you're interviewing people from all over the world. Uh, I only speak one language, barely at that. <laughs> so communicating via online is fantastic because you don't have that barrier because either Google will translate it for you or you can work around it. But sometimes when you're speaking to someone, it's like, um, let's say I just interview someone from Serbia. Are they... Um, is their voice good enough uh, in in an English dialect for people to listen to and would want to listen to? Mm, yeah. So, so you, you know you, you have that issue, then then you might have another issue where they don't understand um, English well enough to talk about something in detail. Um, yeah, yeah. Which, yeah. You know, I, there's been a couple of conversations where people don't understand what I'm talking about. And that's a, a localized thing where I'm from the UK. Someone famous to me is no way famous anywhere else. Oh sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that's something I, you know I'm, I'm slowly getting used to. Um, yeah, and I think that that would be the same. Well, not the same, but similar. Whether you're doing a podcast or a written interview, because even yeah. even whether you use something like Google Translate or you actually have some like a living, breathing person who speaks both languages, translation is not an exact science. So, uh, you know, there are plenty of words in the world that exist in one language, but not in another where like they, there, mm-hmm. isn't a, there isn't a real, uh, a real word for that in the English language that is in say like Chinese or something. In fact, that's yeah. in fact that I think that's where you're probably going to run into more problems than anywhere else. Like, um, I've been to China a couple of times, and when you see some of the signs translated into English, you think, "What the hell are they talking about?" Like, that makes <laughs> no sense whatsoever. Or they're, they're very funny for one reason or another. So okay. you, you realize that you know. Language, how how important language is in terms of the interview and having it uh, not not be beneficial, but be uh, articulated well enough so that people are going to to learn and pick up on on uh, what it is we're talking about, and whether it's yeah. whether it's using your voice or using the written word, it's kind of the same the same challenge. It is, yeah, and like you said, um, not everybody are very good articulators. Uh, you know, I have many friends that can take a photo, but could they train you to teach it? 
No, they wouldn't. They'd be, they'd be terrible at it. And um, there was one gentleman that I interviewed early on online. Uh, he does some fabulous work with tattooed people. Mm. And, and I contacted him again um, once I started the podcast. And I said, would you like to come on the show? And he just said, um, no, um, I'm really not into the speaking side. Or there was something. And I was like, that's cool. You know, if if you're not going to be confident, you're not capable, you don't like it, then it's going to be uncomfortable, isn't it? Mm, true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so, what, it's it, it's interesting too because yeah, some people are some people are easily easily spoken to and easily interviewed because I guess it's really your comfort level, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and that's why, like, I feel I've been, you know, at least from for me, I've been doing this a really long time, and I've been <laughs> pretty comfortable. And um, I think it's more about telling me to shut up more than it is getting me to answer something <laughs> at this point. <laughs> <laughs> like, geez, well, you know, like, how much longer is this guy going to talk? He just won't <laughs> stop. You, you are right that you can tell the difference as well between someone who's experienced like yourself and someone who's um, probably doing their first interview for the first time. And both both are great. Um, I I think they're both different in a different way. So people like yourself and like Bob from the Street Photography Magazine, you know, it's your job to interview people. So I can literally ask you one question and you can talk about this subject for minutes. And it is great because... You're talking with experience. Um, you know about pauses uh, and where to come in and come out. And, you know, a, a normal person's just like, yeah, yeah, I like taking portraits. And then you've got to follow up again, haven't you? <laughs> right. <laughs> and you spend more time trying to come up with additional questions that they have literally no answer for. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's quite funny. I mean, um, I. I'll see what your process is. So mine is um, same as what you said. Do, do some research on the person, and then I use Google Docs and I just do simple bullet point questions, um, and then I sort of keep them in uh, two or three sections, and then I think right, there's a starting point. Get to know the person. Just talk about uh, a bit of photography, and then you know, even if um, I don't have time or I don't want to ask it, then I'll just either take it out. Uh, and just sort of go from there. Yeah. So as far as like planning, um, like your interviews, what tools do you use? Do you use like a Google Doc sort of environment? Do you use a notepad or? Uh, well, let's see. Um, I guess I think it's changed a little bit since I started doing it. Um, and I guess I've also adopted more than one way of going about mm-hmm. it. And it depends upon, it really depends upon the other person's schedule more than anything else. Um, and what <laughs> they're willing and what, how much will they're willing to work on it. So yeah. um, originally I was just, uh, I, w- I was interviewing people who I was already fairly familiar with. So okay. the questions came quite easily. Uh, yeah. So I would just, I keep, I use Google Docs online to kind of keep uh, mm-hmm. a running list of 
uh, specific questions and uh, I guess topics um, that I feel are important uh, in doing the interview that kind of work for most people, not everybody, but most people. And it's an ever-growing list. And like I said, sometimes they're the same question, but worded differently. So I always have that going. Um, and then I, I'll spend a little bit of time uh, on the person's website, um, looking at their work and reading what they may or may not have written about it there. Um, yeah. And then sometimes just a simple Google search to to see what else, you know, where else their work has been shown. You know, um, uh, a really nice thing to discover is uh, where they've shown their work. And sometimes when there's been something like a, a physical exhibition at a particular venue, sometimes you'll also be able to, uh, through that venue's website, they'll, they'll often post the... Uh, you know, images of, of that work. And uh, sometimes there'll be an artist talk involved or another interview or just more information that you wouldn't necessarily find on the person's website. So um, hmm. you have to look beyond just the website um, to do the research. And uh, and sometimes it's I'll, I'll reach out to a person and they'll just ask some kind of uh, preliminary questions just to yeah. find out a little bit more so that I can be better informed uh, to ask a better, you know, a better and more informed question. Um, and then one of the other things that I just just did, uh, um, because the conversational aspect of, can, of, can, of running an interview is uh, a really wonderful way to uh, engage and listen to the interview like what we're doing now, where hmm. you know if i just send somebody a bunch of questions you lose quite a bit of that right um yeah and even if you ask follow-up questions once you get the the answers back you can ask follow-up questions to some of them so yeah that helps a little bit um but one of the things that i just did to kind of help help it a little bit more is uh, the interview actually took place on google docs so i you know wrote <laughs> an initial question and invited that person to view that page um, and then they would answer it and then I would so and I could answer it uh, and keep it going more in a conversational kind of way and I would yeah you know I would I had to like a bit of an outline of what where I wanted to to go with it but when you get questions kind of on the fly like that you don't necessarily know that it's going to go in the way that you had written that outline. So, so it becomes mm -hmm. more of a conversation and um, it kind of, I guess, bridged the gap that existed between the way I was doing it before and something like what we're doing now, where we're actually mm -hmm. speaking to other and having spe or speaking to one another and having an actual conversation about photography and the work that we create. So the, the uh, interview that I have coming out in, on Wednesday, this next one, is going to be that interview. So um, I think it brought a lot more to the interview that uh, some of the other ones in the past may not have had. Um, I, think I, was okay. able, I think that I was able to, the, the idea behind it, at least in this one, was to examine not just the person's work in general, or process, well, you know, that it was heavy on that as well, but it was about kind of the 
the arc of their career and how they create work. Um, okay. It started with the background of the photographer, um, like I usually start all of them, but it quickly led to a specific body of work early on their career and then how that body of work informed the one that came after and then the one that came after that and how there was a progression of uh, concepts and ideas um, while still maintaining a certain aesthetic that that artist um, has for for their for their work and and something where you you know the work could be very different but you could see how one would inform the other and there were key aspects of it that that uh, that took place uh, in that process so uh, I think in terms of that uh, that way of doing about it it would actually turn out to be very successful and I was very happy to do it the downside is when you have somebody do it like that that isn't mm -hmm. it isn't live and I have a busy schedule and they have a busy schedule there would be days in between answering a question so <laughs> it was a very it was a conversation but it was a very slow moving conversation and, and <laughs> yeah. that made it it didn't it didn't i don't think that it really took away from it it just made it a little it obviously was more labor intensive and time intensive and uh uh maybe at least on my part it was a little bit more difficult to maintain focus on what it was that I was doing and trying to say. So, yeah. um, but at the same time, all that meant is I really had to kind of go back and reread from the beginning. So literally it's an interview that I done with somebody that I have probably read 70, 80 times already myself. <laughs> so uh, uh, yeah. yet, yet I'll probably still find typos in it later. <laughs> yeah. But I, but it was a, but it was an interesting way of going about it, and that's something that I would like to do again. It's just, you know, I I literally started the interview I don't know two months ago. Yeah. So it's not an efficient way to go about it. It's just, I think I think it's better in some ways and not in others. It's just it's just a different way to go about it. That's all. Yeah, I've I've done exactly the same actually. Um, when I first started, I did a marvel via Google Docs. And um, I just allowed people into them. Um, I think for me, it was great starting up because it allowed me to do multiple at the same time. Um, I always knew where I was. Yeah. Um, but you do find people then email you that back or they'll say, how do I save it? And how do I print it off? And you're like, whoa, what, what have you done to this document? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. I guess that could be that could be a problem. Luckily, I didn't have that problem with this one, but uh, but I can yeah. see where, I can see how that could you come definitely out. will at some point, Mark. I'll tell you. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it was good, and actually, uh, there was one time when I just started podcasting that I had ultimate failure on everything I tried. We could not get any software working. We tried um, Skype, we was using, uh, I used to use uh, Anchor.fm, uh, we tried uh, a computer, and I mean, we was like this at an hour, and I was like, I'm really, really sorry, I can't believe this is happening. And she was so looking forward to it, 
probably even more than I was. Right. She's like, no, no, I want to get it working. I want to get it working. And I was like, look, went into Google Docs and we just both typed. So uh, it was a point where I was doing random questions. So I don't put them on the screen on purpose. Mm -hmm. The whole point is it's, you know, ad lib. Right. So I just type a question, copy and paste the question in, wait for an answer, put another one in, and it worked well enough for the interview. Right. Yeah, uh, I can see that happening. And that, and I think uh, as I continue to do more, I think that um, uh, what I would have to do is, you know, more or less kind of have to earmark a, you know, a certain amount of time and you know, yeah. and uh, kind of state a deadline so that it doesn't take too long or even just to say, listen, on this day and this day, let's try to get as much done as possible so that we don't get distracted or, you know, veer off course too much. Yeah. And, and then and then it becomes a much more efficient use of our time. Um, but exactly. not everybody can do that. So it's, it's all going to be kind of, it's all a work in progress, isn't it? You know, we just, it is. we, yeah. do, it as we, it, we do it as we can. Yeah. And you never know how far you can push someone to, you know, can you get this done? Um, and, right. and obviously you're running a, you know, a more professional uh, website. So, you know, you want to stick to deadlines for me, it was casual. And I think that was the problem. So basically I just ditched it all and just went straight to podcasting. Um, but you know, I, I don't mind going back to it if I need to. So it's always there, isn't it? Right. Um, so what? One of the other things. So uh, for anyone listening, Michael's obviously uh, another partner in the Analog Forever. So is it editor in chief? You there? Uh, I am editor in chief. Yes. Editor in chief. So what does an editor in chief do then uh, in this sort of environment? Um, I guess in this type of an environment, so um, I was asked to do it by, I guess, a, a little, just a, a tiny bit of background on it. When I was asked mm -hmm. to do it, um, the concept of the magazine is not necessarily mine. It was started by Michael Beelan, who you've already done a podcast with in the past. Um, so he is, he is founder of the magazine, and it is basically his idea, but he came to me um more or less as a as a partner um in in doing this and then we took on two more people as writers and curators um to help us provide content and and uh give us some kind of insight into um where we're going and what we should do and you know more you know more opinions um yeah. without being necessarily in charge so um, I guess to say that I'm editor-in-chief is, I guess to put it in a nautical perspective, is I'm kind of the one uh, at the helm of the ship, kind of steering us in the direction that I feel is uh, is best for us at any given time. Um, right. Michael has great ideas, and um, I guess I can say I have some great ideas. Um, Michael has some ideas that aren't so great, and I have some ideas that aren't so great. And the yeah. nice part about doing this with him is we, uh, similar to the experience I had when I was at Blur Magazine, it's easy to 
kind of bounce the ideas back and forth with each other and we work very well together. Um, we come from very different places in the photography world, but, um, but the, uh, the concepts and the ideas that we have behind what it is that we're trying to achieve are very similar. And he is uh, an endless amount of energy and motivation. Um, and he will be the first to admit that sometimes he needs to kind of just calm down and take a step back sometimes and <laughs> realize that, that not every idea is the one that we should be doing. Not that it's good or not or bad. It's just maybe that's not what we need to do right now. And maybe, maybe our time is better spent doing this or that, or, you know, and, and uh, kind of, um, you know, we use the word curation a lot of the time and it, in the photography world, especially it's kind of overused, but it's a very accurate way of kind of uh, describing what it is we're doing. We're, we're also not just curating work, um, but we're curating the ideas and the, the direction of what it is that we're doing. So I, I guess you could say I'm his right-hand man and, uh, and he's mine, you know, like we can't, you know, one of us is the left hand and one of us the right hand, um, but we work in an ambidextrous fashion. So um, uh, essentially I kind of, you could say that I work for him, but we're very equal in terms of the partnership and what we're trying to do. And then the other, you know, we've, we work very democratically so that the other two people, uh, Tim Scott and uh, Nini and Kelly, they both provide a lot of insight and opinions that we hold very valid and very uh, close to heart, you know, because they all, they both have a great deal of experience as well. And we value their opinions and their ideas. So that's why we made them um, a part of the magazine. So there's really four of us running the ship. Uh, and again, yeah. I'm merely the one that's just kind of, kind of steering it. Um, but I don't want to be, you know, like I say, we do it, we do it in a very democratic form. Um, to say I'm editor in chief is really, that's more of a, you know, I guess for, better, for lack of a better word, that's more of a dictatorship than anything. But I don't want to run it that way, you know, because yeah. I don't want to say it's my way or the highway. It's um, uh, I ask their opinions as much as they ask mine. And I'd like to keep it that way um, because the four of us all, you know, I think we we all kind of uh, we all bounce all of the ideas off of each other quite well. But uh, between Michael and I, especially, we have we we use some software online that Tim Scott has uh, um, uh, set up for us um, called Basecamp, and it and it uh, oh yeah, Basecamp, know, yeah, it really yeah. it has been very beneficial in terms of all of us communicating. Um, we're still going to start doing more of like uh, like uh, phone conference calls and things like that. Um, yeah. So that we can get things done a little bit more efficiently sometimes and just kind of know where each other is at in the terms of uh, the content that we're coming up with. Um, but uh, Tim's helped set that up for us. 
and it's been extremely beneficial. And um, uh, but beyond that, like Michael and I, we we talk on the phone and we email email each other um, several times a week. So we're always in communication with each other and and uh, kind of trying to develop our ideas uh, beyond where we started, which is like I said, we you know originally we set out to do you know only a few uh things in terms terms of what it was that we were going to provide like we were going to do features and we were going to do interviews and then we were going to do online exhibitions but now we're like now we're uh we're reviewing uh we're going to start reviewing some books photo books Mm -hmm. we're going to start reviewing events uh we're bringing in a few other people as kind of correspondents that are in different markets uh, mm-hmm. around not just around uh, the US but around the world um, people who can uh, write an article about something that they're working on or something that they want to report upon uh, whether it's a photo festival or uh, a film or a book so um, we're kind of expanding slowly in terms of what we are doing but again time management always kind of comes into play and so we that's again where I kind of come into play as editor in chief. Um, yeah. Sometimes I have to say, like, you know, that's a great idea, but I think maybe let's address that at a later time, or let's put it off, and, and or let's go ahead with something and see how it goes. So, um, I guess I get I get to make those kind of calls more than anything else, more or more than anybody else in the in the group. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, I, I've obviously followed um, the progress since speaking to Michael back in October. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've done some great collabs. Um, you've, done, uh, you've done some of these great um, photo submissions and there's some prizes. Um, the Facebook group's good. Um, Instagram. I mean, obviously, like I said about this infrared photographer, that came from someone exhibiting on your platform. Oh yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it, it's it's really cool. Um, as far as progress goes, then towards the launch, how are we doing? Um, things are going really well. I mean, like you said, you spoke to Michael in October, and I think we were still very brand new. Like we had literally just launched. Maybe I don't know. At that time, you we've only been around maybe six weeks. So at this yeah, point, yeah. We're, I, think we're, I think we're more at like the six month mark. Um, and we are, while well, we've been doing everything online, which is a funny thing to say for an analog, uh, <laughs> an analog based concept to say, oh yeah, yeah, we only operate online. But I mean, that's just, that's kind of the an aspect of the world that we live in now, right? But yeah. we are we are in the very early stages right now of producing our very first print issue. So we we are going to have a call for submissions very soon for content uh, that we will publish in that issue. Um, we all have some ideas that we're going to start bouncing around for um, what what will be in there, um, what will the layout be. Um, uh, and when will it actually 
launch. You know, right now we're just saying it's a winter issue. Um, the idea in the long run is for us to do two a year, so there will always be a spring and a winter issue uh, each year. That gives us six full months to kind of not just do what we do online in a monthly forum, but to, it gives us six months to to produce the, a print issue. But we we're giving us giving ourselves that amount of time because you know we don't want to kind of just rush into we don't we don't want to just throw something together because again, yeah. going back to time management, you know we all have we all have other things that we're working on. So this is you know we want it to be done at a very high quality. We while this is a passion project, we don't want to kind of we don't want to go about it in a very half-assed way. We want to we want to bring a certain level of quality and uh, both in what we write and in what we present to people and the work that we present. So um, we're probably taking, we eased into things this first six months in an online way because we really needed to develop a, a rapport with one another and a rapport with an online audience mm -hmm. so that when it comes time to, to bring that to the print audience, we, we're we're comfortable with what we're doing and we have a very genuine and uh, informed way of bringing the magazine to the masses. Um, and okay. and I will, time will tell how many issues. Uh, right now it looks like we're going to only offer it as uh, there will be 300 printed issues available. Um, okay. But already I have to say that when we originally were going to do this, it was we were starting it out at only 150. It quickly went to 200, and now we're at 300 because um, even without doing a print issue in the past, there is enough of an interest um, from people that we are kind of, in a way, pre-selling some of this because we're going to be doing, we're going to be having uh, distributors worldwide who have pre-purchased this magazine and we'll have it available to um, people in different markets. That way we don't have to ship the magazine worldwide and uh, okay. deal, deal with making it, and you know, that that in itself makes it in kind of an unaffordable magazine for a lot of people. So if we can, if we can pre-sell and pre-ship magazines to different distributors around the world, then it becomes available to people in those markets at a much more affordable cost. So then that's yeah. something, and that's something that Michael had discovered in his previous uh, uh, venture, which was called uh, Prime Magazine and Prime, Prime Magazine, Tips, yeah. yeah, right. So that that's that comes from his experience, and um, mm -hmm. and I'm glad that he's had that experience, so that we can you know we can bring it in a much more of a viable way to to everybody who's interested and then we'll see maybe it'll maybe it will turn out to be more issues than even 300 this first time mm. around. and we'll we'll you know we'll examine each uh success and failure rate of every aspect of it and then every time we put out a new issue hopefully it will be better and better and the addition size of that issue will grow yeah that's interesting because I bet 
But if we listen back to the interview in, you know, four months' time when you're ready to launch, mm-hmm. you might laugh at yourself and think, 300? What was he talking about? <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, it's funny because, uh, again, going back to, like, Google, Google Docs, uh, when Michael and I were first kind of deciding on what we were going to do and how we were going to go about it, and, you know, there's thousands of questions that we had because we were trying to figure it all out. And um, I came across a document that I still have access to on Google Docs of where we were first kind of doing an outline of what we would offer um, both as a print issue and and as uh, as an online resource. And um, I I found a lot of what what we had gone over to be kind of humorous because of that well you know some of them some of the ideas we we were so far off base on what and what it became that it's kind of mm-hmm. humorous to, to see um some of the ideas that we had and some of the things that we had passed on that we realized that was a mistake that we can't pass on that that we actually mm-hmm. need to, to do that now so okay. Um, it's nice being able to kind of look at it in a historical perspective, even even when it's only months old. You know, we we can kind of see what it is that we're doing and how we're going about it and how to how to improve. Yeah, well, that's all part of the journey, isn't it? Right. Well, at least you'll have your own podcast to look back and think. <laughs> yeah. For the future, it's going to be strange, though, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'll listen to this in a year, and I'll think, what the hell was I talking about? Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> the thing is, things go out of date so fast, even in the world of film. It, you just don't know what we're going to be talking about in a year's time, do you? Right. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I think about that a lot of the times when I'm doing interviews, because uh, I'll often inter- end an interview by asking what a particular photographer has coming up like is there is there a yeah. book project there's an exhibition you know and that has a shelf life right that, that's that right. a year from now like none of that's going to matter so i'm literally i realize and i realize that i'm asking a question that in the long run really kind of doesn't matter but then again maybe it does maybe that's from a historical perspective you can see where that artist was at that particular time in their career um because maybe it's something that they mentioned was turned out to be a major life-changing event in their career, or maybe it had no, no, you know, no performance, no result at all. So it, yeah. so maybe it helps, maybe it doesn't. I don't know. Time will only tell. Yeah. It's going to be interesting. Yeah. And like I said, uh, you know, like the internet is, Nothing ever really goes away, right? That's why we all That's have to be very, be very careful about how we conduct ourselves online because, you know, especially in terms of social media, we yeah. it's, it's really easy to put your foot in your mouth and then look at it later and just think and just be completely embarrassed by something that you had said or done in the past. And that can come back yeah. to haunt you. Yeah, definitely. I've been there and learned my lesson quite quickly. So. <laughs> <laughs> Never ever again. So, right. yeah. and I think that's part of it. In it, you've got to re- reflect and learn. Right, and I think that that's where, I mean, certainly older an older generation is kind of learned that much more quickly than the younger generation. I'm sure, I'm sure people who were, you know, 
in their teens and early 20s now, they're going to look up on some of the stuff that they posted online in only a few years, and they're going to be, they're going to realize what a mistake it was. Yeah, yeah, I think, right, I think, uh, I think the whole world's changed because of uh, social media and, right. you know, we don't need to talk about it because it's, everyone does, don't they? Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, excuse me. So uh, I want to thank you for uh, answering all our questions. Oh, I'm uh, so, happy to be here. No, that's cool. So this is the part of the show where we venture into the random questions. Uh-oh. Has Michael warned you about these? You know what? He <laughs> he did, and I forgot. Yeah. So, <laughs> you, yeah, this is... Uh, I'm now being reminded, that, so this is, I guess, a, a key aspect of the the live conversation. So we'll find out. So let's go for it. <laughs> well, Michael's interview are called Polaroid Frog Dances and Nightmares. <laughs> that was the title. So two of them things came from um, questions, I think, if I remember right. Okay. So, yeah, let's see. I'll tell you, we'll, we'll start with nice and simple. You've just entered the afterlife. You get to choose an animal and they will bond with you for eternity. What would it be? Ooh, boy. Uh, let me think. Oh, you might have to edit out a long pause here. <laughs> That's all right. An, an animal that I have to, an animal comes to me in my afterlife and I have to bond mm. with it for an eternity. So obviously it has to be something that I feel a certain kinship to. Something, yeah, yeah. something that I might have to say associates with me more than anything else. What animal would that be? Um, you know, this is probably a a cop out of an answer, mm. but I will say because it's not a you know, well, I guess it's. A, an opinion. Um, it's not an actual animal, animal, but I would like to say uh, a phoenix. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, phoenix on the flames. Because, not, uh, because we're talking about something uh, that represents uh, rebirth mm. in a certain way. Um, yeah, yeah. Something that uh, I hope would be eternal. And, yeah. uh, and I say that because um, I, when I, you know, I look back upon my own life and career, especially in photography, which is all, almost all of my life, really, um, in, one, in one way or another, uh, there have been, while it's all been photography, there have been very different parts of it, right? There are different chapters, I guess you could say. Um, mm -hmm. There are things that I used to do in photography that I don't do at all anymore. And then there are things that I do now that I did more, you know, that I, oh, maybe I do them even more. Um, like I mentioned, the fact that instant film became a part of my life when I was seven or eight years old. And it's, yeah. and it's, more so now than ever before. Yet there are things that I used to do early on that I don't have any any really relation to at all anymore. Um, um, 
yet they're all things that uh, have been a part of my life and have had an influence in it, I guess. So no matter how many times I'm kind of reborn in terms of the the actions that I'm taking as a photographer, because they have changed over time, but I never thought I would be somebody who was writing about photography as much as I do or interviewing people. You know, that's a new chapter. So uh, I think of, when I think of the Phoenix, I think in terms of that, if that makes any, any sense, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's good, yeah. That maybe, sounds... maybe that's the thing I'm going to look back in a year and go, why did I say that? <laughs> that is very deep, I'll give you that, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> um, when was the last lie you told? And when did you last compliment someone? The last lie that I told? Yeah. Oh, wait. Oh, the last lie that was a compliment, you mean? No, so two different things. Two different so when was the last, yeah, last lie and then the last compliment you gave someone? Um, boy, I don't, I can't, I'm not, I can't think of a specific instance of what the last lie, it was, I can say that it was probably, uh, I'm, I'm often asked my opinions on uh people's work and i i i really try hard to be honest and uh, honest with people in terms of and and in fact i think it's always best to be brutally honest with people in terms of the work that they're developing but i have Mm -hmm. a hard i i'm still trying to develop that kind of uh brutal honesty with people so I'm sure that there has been uh, a time uh, that has asked me what what I liked or disliked about their work, and my answer was probably not as on point as it should have been, um, <laughs> because you know I you want to be honest with the person, but at the same time you don't want to kind of you know crush their hopes and dreams. <laughs> you know, I don't I don't know yeah. that I would ever be that that. Uh, you know, mean about any of it, but uh, there are, there's a lot of work out there. And, and this is, you'll find this probably in places like Instagram more than anywhere. Like you, there's a lot of really great things to find there, but it's, it's the minority of the work that's, you know, most of the, most of the stuff that people are putting on Instagram is um, sheer and utter crap, if you ask me, but, mm. but maybe that's a step in the right direction for that person. I don't know. Um, but for me to say, uh, you know, for, for one of those people to say, oh, well, what do you think of this work? I might say, oh, yeah, this is really great. You know, keep at it. Where sometimes maybe I want to say, no, you need to stop doing, <laughs> you need to stop doing that. And find some, <laughs> not that you need to find another, uh, uh, another job, but you need to, you know, m- maybe, maybe look at going down a different road with what you're Yeah, so, I know exactly what you mean. Right. So, so that, I guess that would be, that would That's be the lie, but I can't, I can't, like I said, I can't think of a specific instance off the, off yeah. The, um, and then what was the other, I'm sorry, what was the other, the other, half? uh, the last compliment you gave someone might've been the same kind of thing. Actually, yeah. I, may, I may have complimented somebody that I shouldn't have. Um, mm. uh, and again, that's, that goes back to the whole, you know, 
me trying to be true with myself in terms of <laughs> my my me, opinions of me too of nice for people yeah something maybe i'm too nice about it um uh and again i try not to be but uh, i think that that's that's really what it's about for me mm. so well, I, I don't know if that's I, a, it's probably not a great answer uh, <laughs> that's fine um i probably lie and compliment someone every day to be honest Right. Well, I've got children, so let's face it, we lie to children all the time to protect right. them. And I also compliment them every day. So, um, Shakespeare is immortalized by the quote, to be or not to be. What quote would you like to be remembered by? That's, that's easy, and it's something that I believe I said earlier. Um, and it's something that I tell people who are engaging in photography all of the time. And, and it, it goes back to, this is a very difficult uh, endeavor to be taking on for anybody in any sort of uh, formal or meaningful way. Um, uh, it's, and it's easy to get discouraged um, so much of what people say of you or your work is based merely upon opinion. Um, and none of that opinion is actual fact. It is just opinion. So um, it's easy to become discouraged and distraught in terms of what you do. Um, I think mm -hmm. depression is a big uh, part and a big issue with a lot of people in the arts. So... Yeah. Um, I said earlier that perseverance is key. And I think mm. that, that would be, that would be the quote because uh, I say it a lot to other people, but I have to say it to myself all of the time as well. I, you know, I can't, I can't just say, you know, I'm, I'm this great authority on perseverance because I can honestly say that there probably isn't a week that goes by where I think, what, you know, what am I doing? Why am I doing this or that? And maybe I shouldn't be doing this or that. So maybe it's something small and something, maybe it's something major, but it happens uh, frequently. And I, you know, not just with other people, but with myself. So um, perseverance is key. And I have to remind myself of that as well. Mm, that's, a, that's a really good one. Yeah. The amount of times that you, you sat there by yourself. How do you think, should I do this? Do I give up? I mean, yeah. Right. It's, it's easy to question yourself, right? It is, yeah. It's one of our biggest problems. <laughs> right. Without a doubt. But also, like you say, it's probably the flip side. If you persevere, then, you know, you talk to someone, you cheer up, and, you know, podcasting's done that for me. So right. I'm trying to persevere with it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah spot on. <laughs> um, you are in a shop and turn your eye and notice the cash machine is beeping and there is cash there someone has obviously left their money what do you do oh I'd take it all and run no I'm kidding um... <laughs> you wouldn't I'm telling you now yeah, I, I, would, I, think I, I already know what you're going to say yeah no I do no I would definitely uh uh 
I, I guess I would close the cash drawer and I would find the owner and, you know, yeah. I, you know, I, to you do, to, to do something like that. Yeah. When, when somebody's not looking, uh, yeah, I just, I, there's no right. I, I, you know, I'm, I guess I'm a big firm believer in things like karma. So, uh, yeah. it's doing something like, uh, taking off with something that isn't yours is just not, it's like, not it, my uh, thought process. And it's theft either way, isn't it? So. Right. And it's, you know what, that's somebody's, somebody labored for that money. Somebody put in hard work uh, for that and that's who it belongs to. Yeah. yeah. That, that's the reward, right? You know, that's cash, right, yeah. you know, reward is, is, or I'm sorry, cash is a reward for so much of our lives that um you know the people that put in the hard work are the people that deserve that yeah totally agree with you yeah it happened to me recently that was also i thought right that one down oh is that right yeah how, how much yeah. did you get, get away with oh god that's just, right. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding <laughs> um the digital world is full of updates and upgrades but what function or part of your body would you like to update or upgrade <laughs> that's a great question that's a really <laughs> great question uh and very true yeah you're right boy updates and upgrades that's a constant thing um what so you I could like? take this anywhere yeah yeah you you could but i will say that's actually easy for me and it's and it's a it's probably not an uncommon response, but um, uh, we're all getting older, and I'm not. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm I'm I am as well, and uh, so I would say I would love an upgrade on my back <laughs> and, oh, okay. and my knees, right? Oh, you know, I. Uh, uh, photography can be a very physical endeavor and um, in order to get the photograph that I want sometimes I find myself in like some precarious and uncomfortable <laughs> places and um, I'm tall so I have okay. uh, pain and thing like when you're tall you get pain in your joints quite easily right it's just kind of a condition yeah. of being tall uh, so um, my knees have always, well, they're, they're fine by and large. They get sore and my back gets sore and um, wow. an upgrade, a physical upgrade on those two things would be really great. Uh, okay. I think that that would just keep me going a lot longer than, than anything else. No, no, that's cool. Yeah, it's a real world answer, I think. Um people of maybe my generation, your generation, they're thinking the same there. So I can't wait to ask someone who's 20, and maybe that sort of age, what the hell they're going to answer is going to be something out of this world, isn't it? Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're yeah. thinking like realistically. Said, yeah. Uh, our knees are knackered, our, eyes, our eyesight's are getting worse. <laughs> yeah, I think it's an easy question for people like us, but people who are younger, you know, it's a, it's a, it becomes a much more difficult question. 
you know so we've you, had the experience of knowing what's worth what's worth upgrading you know, people who are young just it's all so new to them they, they're not yeah. the same yeah yeah totally the last question um you get to um give a present have a pint or punch each of these three people and you got to choose one for each michael jordan Michael Jackson and Michael Phelps. Um, okay. Now I asked this one to Michael, so he, he got this straight away, some of this. Wow. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Michael Jackson, Michael Jordan. Okay. Michael Phelps. Michael Phelps. Um, two of those people I've actually met. Uh, Ooh. And uh, um, I, so I have... I mean, minor personal experience with. Um, cool. But they were both great. Um, <laughs> yeah. I would like to... And before you answer it, just remember, this is going on the air. Right. So if you <laughs> say you're going to punch someone, I'm right. going to just tell everybody. Yeah. I, I think that's... <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, by process of elimination, decide who to punch, because that's the hard... <laughs> Right. I think um, yep. I think I would I would give a present to Michael Jackson. Okay. Because and do I do I need to say why? I guess I should. Yeah, yeah, please, yeah. Okay. I and I would do that because um I think that he he would respond to that present better than anybody yeah. better than the other two. And because uh, I have always saw him as somebody who had a, I guess, a, a displaced childhood of his own. So something oh, like God, a, yeah. so something like a gift is something that's a bit of a throwback to to the to being a child and you know receiving mm -hmm. a gift from somebody. So I think that that would be that would be the gift um, or the present. Um, the pint. So let's see. Uh, yeah, you know what? I'm gonna punch Michael Phelps. I'm gonna punch Michael Phelps. I said it. Um, and I'll have a pint with Michael Jordan. I think that, and I, I say that because um, I think that I would. Right. When you're going to have a pint with somebody, you're going to have a conversation with them, right? Yeah. So I think that I would enjoy my conversation with Michael Jordan more than I would with Michael Phelps, even though I, that, that doesn't mean Michael I, doesn't mean I wouldn't enjoy a conversation with Michael Phelps. Um, yeah. I just think that Michael Jordan's uh, accomplishments and career, mm. in many ways, probably. It's it's not a it's not fair to say, but maybe they outshine Michael Phelps a, a little bit. Although his his accomplishments and career are outstanding as well. But um, yeah, uh, you know what? I, would think, I just you know I think he could take the punch. That's all. Yeah, I think <laughs> uh, Michael Jordan surpasses yeah. Phelps by a long way, especially internationally. I mean. I would yeah. know a lot about Michael John compared to Phelps, who yeah, I would are probably agree. in the Olympics. Yeah, and I don't want to hurt Michael Michael Jordan. You know, he's older. He's no. Michael Phelps can take a punch. 
Yeah, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so thank you very much for going through that, Michael. Appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. That was fun. <laughs> um, so we're, we're very close to the end of the show. Um, what I normally like to do is give my guests a chance to uh, tell people where we can find their work, uh, whether it's websites, books, events. So if you want to just go ahead and tell everyone your links, and I will put them in the show notes, so don't worry. Okay. Uh, well, that's uh, that's easy. Um, I'll just give you the links to uh, my website. My personal mm-hmm. website is michaelkirchhoff.com, um, and that leads to, obviously, my uh uh, fine art portfolios, um, information about me, uh, the availability of uh, purchasing prints, and how to how to get a hold of me. Um, I like to hear from people, so uh, you know, send me an email. I'm not, I'm gonna, I'll answer. Uh, hmm. Let's see, uh, analog analogforevermagazine.com. Uh, is the link for the, the magazine that Michael Beeland and I have been running. Um, and catalystinterviews.com. That is the interview website that I started around the same time. Um, and I started that as a way to provide what I would hope to be a wealth of information for people who are in search of their own process and goals in photography. So uh, those three links would be perfect. No, that's cool. Yeah, thank you very much for that. I appreciate it. Um, and uh, the last thing I was asking with my guests is, um, who would you like to uh, see on the show next? Um, it could be anyone. Um, I do like to choose people from different, either parts of the industry or different industries, or someone totally different to the rest. So mm-hmm. have you got anyone in mind? Oh boy, that's a very difficult question because I—I <laughs> I mean, I have to you say, like, uh, not not in a not in terms of not trying to brag or anything, but like I know a lot of people because you do, yeah. Through doing the interviews in the magazine and uh, the fine art community is a very uh, close community. Uh, okay, I've I, I reached out to a lot of them, and I know a lot of them. Um, Boy, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to think about that one. Can I do? Yeah, that? have a think about that. Um, yeah, I think saying, mentioning good, somebody so. live, I, I would, yeah, yeah. I think I, to do it justice, I'm gonna have to give it a little bit of thought. But I will definitely let you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I was gonna say. Fine out would be awesome. So that's uh, I've really interviewed anyone who really covers fine out before. So yeah, yeah I mean, unless you want to reach out to Michael Phelps, but. <laughs> I don't think you I'm not sure if it works. Like, uh, my friend Michael Kirchhoff said uh, he'd like to punch you. Would you like to come on the podcast with me? <laughs> Perfect. That, that yeah. listen and answer, I bet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that, no that, that's perfectly fine. Um, yeah, just get back to me whenever you can. That's not a problem. I, defi- I definitely will. Yeah, I appreciate that. So we have to thank you very much for... Um, spending your time um i know uh, as you said you, you're busy with so many projects i don't i don't know when you have time to sleep so <laughs> i don't <laughs> you don't oh, there you go. But there's one to sleep. Don't. Don't sleep. yeah <laughs> um well I, I andrew i really appreciate you uh reaching out to me and uh conducting this podcast with you it's been a pleasure 
Oh, no, it's appreciated. And uh, I will get this uh, uploaded and edited as soon as I can. And uh, you'll hear from me very soon. Excellent. I look forward to it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Cheers, Michael. Cheers. Well, folks, that's the end of another show. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I enjoyed making it. It's always great to have a guest on with me. Um, Please do share the post and podcast show as much as you can where relevant. Um, If you have time, please do not forget to review this on iTunes. Uh, Just hit the review button and give it five stars, please. It's always helpful. Uh, It's motivation for me to keep the show going and I want to keep this going for as long as possible and basically I'd like to get lots of lots of different and interesting people on here so that's what I'm trying to do thank you again and see you next time bye